Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. This is going to be the last message in this series that we've been going through all fall in A Table with the King, and uh, this, the title is simply No Water, No Water. And uh, as you can see from this passage, and uh, starting from next Sunday, then we go into our Advent, Advent series, and then starting from January, uh, the Lord has just been praying, and I think the Lord has really kind of finally clarified and confirmed uh, what he wants us to go through, and I'll kind of share with that later. But uh, this is going to be the final message in uh, the Meal with the King, and this is uh, fitting as we head into Thanksgiving, and we talk about gratitude the source of our gratitude. With that, join me in a word of prayer. Now let's pray. Father, uh, we have just so much to be grateful for, Lord, as we come into your presence, Lord. Um, God, you have uh, carried us through uh, this past year, personally in our lives, but even as a church, uh, it's been two months. <laughs> it feels like a year, but Lord, you've carried us through. Uh, day after day, week after week. We're so thankful for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you uh, brought us into existence so that uh, we could reflect who you are to those around us, that we could be a display of your glory, of your kingdom, of your love, and your heart. Lord, would you open our hearts now? Would you speak to us? Uh, Would you just remind us once again of who you are and to cause our hearts to worship once again. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you this question, um, but as I was reflecting on this whole idea of gratitude and entering to Thanksgiving, but what is it that really produces gratitude? What gives us hearts that uh, genuinely, from the bottom of our heart, we are just absolutely thankful to God uh, to those around us. I share with you, uh, I think this is maybe about a month ago in one of my messages that um, one of the persons, or I have a friend up in the Bay Area that I've been in regular contact with, and I mentioned to you that uh, this friend, and I married this couple uh, several years ago, that uh, he has stage four pancreatic cancer. And uh, the latest update with him is that the first round of chemo treatments has not gone successfully, so the cancer continues to spread in other parts of his body. And uh, so at this point, the other kind of treatments that he's pursuing are the chances of of, uh, healing or of uh, stopping the spread of his cancer reduces considerably at this point. So things are not looking good. And my friend... uh, you know, as a couple, they've gone through quite a journey. His wife just recovered from breast cancer, had a, a breast replacement. And uh, so they went through that turmoil, and then he found out of this uh, pancreatic cancer. So it's been, it's been uh, pretty bad. And on top of that, uh, last week, he caught COVID. He wasn't sleeping well, as is. Uh, he didn't have much energy, but... Uh, trying to go through chemo treatments, trying to just get enough strength just to walk around the living room, and maybe at times if he has enough energy just to go outside into his front lawn, 
takes tremendous effort. And so he caught COVID last week, so that's made it even worse. Now, this is a sharing from my friend's wife on their Caring Bridge site. And this is their latest entry. She says, I am counting my blessings, God. You are good, good God. I'm thankful that our boys are fully recovered from COVID. I'm thankful that I can still take care of Rob and boys without catching COVID this past week and this week. I'm thankful there are an army of Rob's prayer warriors and friends supporting him and us. I'm thankful that I can manage my work from home and balance what's going on. I'm thankful for the team of doctors, nurses, specialists, and pharmacists who care for Rob. I'm thankful that I have another year with my family to celebrate Jesus' birth. I'm thankful that God is filling me up daily with his words and teachings. I'm tired and shattered, but I am content because I know deeply that God has great plans for us. So this is her latest entry uh, from this past week that she wrote in light of all the chaos that's happening. Contrast that. This past summer, my family and I took a just a, you know just a, a great, great, wonderful vacation, and we were in Lake Tahoe, and we were staying at a really nice place, um, the Marriott Timber Lodge. It's super nice, right? And uh, contrast to that with someone who is in the elevator as we're staying in this this great, amazing place, as far as I'm concerned, and this person was just kind of going off on, ah, this place, they're not, it's not updated, they haven't updated this place in a while, Uh, you know, the service is getting worse, you know, the food is not as good as it used to be, right? But I'm thinking, this is amazing, right? Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Uh, but this is quite a treat, you know, for us. And I think it made me kind of wonder, why are some people extremely grateful in some of the, the most adverse situations in life, but some people can find a way to complain about some of the best situations in life? How could it be so different, so opposite? Some people have a lot, but they're joyless, and they're ungrateful. Some people have very little, but they have tremendous gratitude and joy in their, in their heart. And why is that? Why is it that people react so differently? And I will say this. The hint is, it has very little to do with how much you have, how little you have, or what is going on or isn't going on in your life. Tim Keller, a deceased pastor uh, from New York, I, I kind of you know, quote him once in a while, but he says this about ingratitude. He says, ingratitude is a fundamental rather than a superficial sin. It is part and parcel of pride and self-centeredness, a deep denial of how dependent we are on God and one another. And he says this, if we aren't thankful it's because we don't think we owe anything. If we aren't thankful, it's because we don't 
think we owe anyone anything. In other words, pride, this, this idea, I deserve it. I've earned it. I've worked hard for it. So why should I be thankful? I mean, yeah, some people may have helped me along. Maybe God helped me along here and there. But for, for the most part, I am here. I have what I have because I worked hard for it. Or I've earned it. Or I was smart enough. Or uh, whatever th that is. That's what he's getting at. And this is really, I think, this really strikes at the heart of the idea of gratitude. Gratitude is not, it is a spiritual discipline. It is something that we can cultivate and grow in. But it's something much deeper than that. It lies at the very heart of what we believe about ourselves, about God, about our lives, like what our deep, deep-seated beliefs are about these things. And I have one simple key idea, and that is gratitude comes from a heart of humility. Gratitude simply comes from a heart of humility. And I'm going to kind of unpack this a little bit. But the opposite of humility is entitlement. Um, it's taking things for granted. But humility says that every gift that we've received, any good thing that happens is sheer grace. We don't deserve it. So let me go back to this passage in Exodus 17. Right here uh, in this passage, Israel did what they were commanded by the Lord to do. They're following this, the pillar of cloud and fire, but as they're following the Lord's leading through the pillar, there is no water to drink. Now, I want you to understand something here right off the bat. The Israelites were completely in the will of God, but they were in a very difficult time. And what this passage tells us right off the bat is that it's possible for you to be following God's will. In fact, it's very likely that as we follow God, that God is going to really lead us into situations that are extremely difficult. And we kind of learned this a little bit last week in prayer, that he leads us in deserts. When we go through these deserts or when we go through these very, very difficult situations, these are times where we're tempted to question, God, where are you? God, I thought you cared for me. I thought you were good. So why is this not working out in the way that I expected? And this is what's happening with the Israelites in this passage. I, there's a couple things that we see about their hearts. And the first thing we see about the heart of the Israelites or what's going on in their heart is that they were demanding. They were demanding God's provision. Look at verses 1 to 2 again. It says that all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by sages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Give us water to drink. So, you can imagine, the Israelites are moving on, and as they're in this desert, there's no water. Now, this is a legitimate concern. 
If there's no water, there's no life, right? You can't go on more than a couple days, a few days without water. So they're not just imagining a problem. This is a real problem. If you were, if you and I were right here in this situation with Israelites, we should be very concerned, shouldn't we? Like, we need water. We need bread. These are the basic essentials of our sustenance, right? But notice how Moses addresses this issue. Moses said to them, he says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Now, it's interesting what Moses is saying here. Moses is saying that ultimately, you're quarreling or you're, you're disputing with me, but ultimately, you are quarreling or you are testing God himself. Now, you may think Moses is being a little too harsh, right? Like, if you and I are there, water is a basic thing. It's reasonable for us to bring our concerns to Moses. But he says, really, you're testing God. You have to understand the context of what's happening here in Exodus 17. This is actually the third time that they complained against Moses. The first time was in Exodus 15. So just a couple chapters earlier, they witnessed an amazing miracle from God in which he parts the Red Sea, and then they go right through the Red Sea. Of course, we know the story, drowning Pharaoh and his armies right in, into that sea. And right after they experienced this miraculous deliverance, supernatural deliverance, they then begin to quarrel because the water is too bitter. So, that's the first time that they bring this issue, uh, some kind of issue before Moses. But the second time is in chapter 16. In the wilderness of sin, they're hungry, and they don't have uh, the food, and they say, you know, at least in Egypt, uh, we were eating meat, we ate to our heart's content, uh, we were satisfied, and then the Lord provides supernaturally, though, for them to enjoy manna every single day in the desert, just popping up. And they're just experiencing these miraculous provisions of God all the way through. And so by the time they get to here, this is not the first time they bring an issue with Moses. It's actually the third time. And Moses understood that their complaining or their quarreling was not, that was just a surface issue. What was going on in their heart was a very deep unbelief in who God actually is. That's what he saw. This is about spiritual hardness. It wasn't just about a legitimate concern. It was a lack of trust in who God was. And they didn't even ask for water. If you know this, in this text, they're not saying, Moses, uh, we have this concern, and we, you know, we just want to bring this to your attention. They said to Moses, give us water to drink. Right? It wasn't even polite. Just give us water. And it was a demand. So, um, 
you know, a lot of times in our culture, right, we think complaining, grumbling, those kind of things, I mean, we are so used to it because it's so common in our culture, and we hear it so often in our lives. And a lot of times when we complain, grumble about different things, uh, you know, it's easy for us to just sort of justify it. You know, well, I'm just being honest, or this is truthful, or those kind of things, right? But what Moses is saying, and what the Bible is saying, is that when we have complaining and grumbling, it actually is symptomatic of something much deeper in our hearts. It's actually a spiritual issue. There's something in our hearts that we're not actually believing about who God is. And that's kind of what he's getting at with this. But the passage goes on, and they question God's protection. Look at verse 3. The people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So, what's going on here? What is our view of God? What is our view of Moses? They're basically saying, God, Moses, um, you brought us up out of these terrible situations, but only to kill us, they have a pretty low view. They think that Moses, uh, they're thinking that, uh, that the Lord is, is cruel, he's mean. This is how they're looking at, at him. Right? Where are you? Did you bring me to this point in my life just to make us suffer? And a lot of times, I think we assume, easily assume, that when we are going through these kind of difficulties or problems in our lives, we easily assume God is absent or that he has bad intentions for our lives. That's what's going on. Well, look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And... The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now notice how the Lord responds to his people, right? To their blatant complaining, grumbling, those kind of things. What does the Lord do? Does the Lord scold them? Does the Lord chide them? Does the Lord say, you know, like you complainers, you, you know, you've been doing this over. No, he doesn't do that. How does the Lord respond to his people? He is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Um, the Lord instructs Moses, okay, go to the rock. And uh, I am going to show myself and strike this rock, and then water will just come out. I love this phrase, behold, I will stand before you. This is what the Lord declares to Moses. One of the greatest themes, uh, if you look throughout the Bible, but 
as you see in this journey, particularly with the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan, is this idea, and the Lord repeats this over and over again to his people. He says, I will be with you. I am going to stand before you. And every time they're fearful, afraid, they're doubting, they're complaining, and all these things, and that's basically us, right, as children. The Lord, he doesn't chide his people. He says, I am going to stand before you. He keeps reassuring him, reassuring them over and over again. I am going to go before you. I will be with you each step of the way. I will provide. Uh, you will see. And he instructs Moses to do this. Why a rock? I mean, striking the rock, it clearly shows that it's from God himself. There's no other way, right? This is clearly a miracle, a supernatural divine provision from God. And this is what the rock is to demonstrate. So he does so. And verse 7 then says, He called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is he among us or not? It's interesting, these uh, two places or these two names that Moses gives Massah and Meribah. Massah means testing. Meribah means arguing. Testing and arguing. In other words, they were testing the Lord and they were arguing, quarreling with Moses and ultimately with God himself, but they were really questioning God's presence. Even, the Lord, even though the Lord constantly shows his presence with his people time and again, um, they are still testing him. They're still questioning the Lord. Now, what does this mean for us? As I mentioned, you and I are not too different oftentimes than the Israelites. We live in a culture that really uh, looks at complaining and grumbling as something that is not only normal, but that oftentimes is encouraged. You know, if you feel something, if you uh, have a gripe, you know, uh, you should just air it. You know, just let it out. The culture, like, encourages us in this direction, right? And it becomes so normative that we think that this is, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. And we're tempted to complain about a lot of things in life, whether small things, big things. Uh, You know, maybe it's the traffic. Oh, the traffic is bad, right? Uh, Or going to LAX. Oh, you know, why is it always so congested? You know, (laughs) I'm guilty, okay? I confess. Uh, but yeah, just LAX, right? Uh, the food, the service, you know, it, oh, that was not good. And the service was not, you know, service was not very good. But then we're tempted to complain about bigger things in, in our lives as well. Work, right? Ah, oh, the work. They're piling on the work. Uh, it's unfair. Uh, my boss is not a good boss. He's, uh, he or she is treating me uh, not fairly. Uh, our coworkers, uh, you know, they, they don't pick up the slack or those kind of things. Uh, maybe it's someone in your life. And as we kind of talked about uh, last weekend in prayer, there's a difficult person in your life, and this person just makes your life miserable. Right? Brings so much pain in your life. And they don't treat you well at all. 
Uh, in fact, they mistreat you. And there's a temptation in our hearts just to, to just complain and to gripe and, and to just kind of let it all out. But I think when we're tempted in these ways, just like the Israelites, there's a couple of things that we need to remember. How do we fight against the spirit of complaining and grumbling and cultivate genuine deep gratitude on a daily level? How does this work? And there's a couple things. One is we have to remember who we are and who God is. We have to remember who we are and who God is. I, I mentioned this at the, the beginning of this message. But when we talk about gratitude, gratitude is a choice, yes. It is a discipline, yes. But at the very heart of gratitude is what we really believe about who God is and who we are. At the heart of Christianity, at the very heart of our faith, is deep, deep gratitude. And if there's not gratitude, deep gratitude in our hearts, we have to ask ourselves, why? What is it that we believe about God? We as Christians, this is what we simply believe. We believe that every good thing that we've been given is surely a gift. It's just surely, purely nothing but God's grace, a gift to our lives. That's all of it. We did nothing to bring ourselves into existence in this world. Zero. We, our lives, our very breath is sustained by Jesus himself. It's given by God. And as Christians, we believe that we actually deserve the opposite of life. That actually we deserve death. We deserve judgment. That we have actually rebelled against God himself, the king of the universe, by living lives our own way, our own direction, and that we were steeped in self-centeredness and pride. But what did God do? He rescued us. He gave us life through his son, Jesus Christ. And this life that was given to us is sheer grace. That's all it was. Nothing we did to, to deserve this forgiveness. And Jesus took our place on that cross so that we can receive forgiveness and eternal life, despite what it is that we actually deserve. This is the very heart of Christianity. And if this doesn't generate or produce within us a disposition, a deep, deep sense of gratitude, then we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we believe about who God is, about who we are? This is, this is, the, this is the core, this is the, the heart of it. And therefore, the lives that we live from this point on, now that we've met Jesus, is this. We are completely indebted to him. Right? It's the difference between someone who pays your parking ticket, right, and says, okay, I'll pay your parking ticket for you. Oh, well, thank you. That was really nice of you. Versus if you were sitting on death row, you were about to be executed with no chance of parole, and then someone says, I will take your place for you on death row. I will be executed on your behalf. It's kind of weird at that point to just simply say, oh, well, thank you. That was nice of you, right? It's a different kind of gratitude. 
there's a deep sense in which now you feel indebted to this person. Deeply indebted. And that's the gospel. So when the gospel sinks into our hearts at that level, wow, you begin to look at life, you begin to look at people, you begin to look at your life in a whole different lens. It's no longer the sense of entitlement. There's a deep gratitude. So, the problem with the Israelites is that they had forgotten that. Look at Psalm 95. This is the psalm that I read earlier to call us into worship. In Psalm 95, uh, the psalmist writes, For he is our God, and we are, his, we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. This is a context of Psalm 95, right, right here. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, though they had seen my work, what work is he talking about? The Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance, the salvation. And that's the same thing with us. Though we have seen the work of Jesus on the cross through the work of Christ, the ultimate exodus. But secondly, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Psalm 106, verse 13 says this, So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They soon forgot his works. I underlined the beginning right here, verse 10 and verse 13, because I want you to see the connection in this psalm. The connection is simply that God saves the hand of the foe, redemption, power, deliverance from the enemy. So he's done this great act, but they soon forgot his works. And what I want you to see is there is a connection between, you could say, God's work and God's character. God's work and God's character. God's work of saving and delivering was to ultimately show who God is, his character of power, of grace, of love, of deliverance. This is to display who God is. And we must continually remind ourselves that God's work displays his character. It displays his character. Now, I grew up in a very traditional uh, Asian family, Korean, Korean uh, family. So what that meant was that growing up, uh, I never uh, heard my parents say words like, I love you. Right? Oh, I love you. Uh, you're so precious to me. Uh, I affirm you. <laughs> you, know, you. You never hear those words, right? Uh, growing up in the, I don't know, I see some smiles with that, right? It's very true. And I remember being conflicted growing up because here I am in my household, it's very Korean, and outside uh, with my friends, and I see uh, their families, their parents, or I watch TV like the Brady Bunch and things like that. And I'm thinking, wow, that's such a loving family. What, right? And the way I interpreted a loving family was, oh, they're just so affectionate with each other, verbally affectionate. 
physically, all of that, right? So that was a conflict, a source of conflict within me, a tension like, oh, I wonder why my parents never say things like, I love you, you know, um, and began to question that. And it wasn't, that was my immaturity. And uh, it produced some tension and conflict with me, but there was, there was an immaturity on my part because uh, it would take me a little time to work this through to realize that, yes, of course, Asians don't express those kind of things, a tradition, traditional Asian culture, but how do they express their love? Well, actually in a biblical kind of way, through their actions. My parents worked very hard. They sacrificed. They uprooted their lives from Korea. And my, both my parents, they, had, you know, they came from uh, backgrounds of prestige, and uh, they were both college-educated, which at the time was uh, unheard of. I mean, at that time in the 60s, uh, you know, 50s, after the Korean War, I mean, just there aren't many college-educated people. Uh, my dad had a, a government position. I mean, it was, you know, they came from some means and background. They uprooted their lives. They came here. We got planted, and they opened up a burger shop, of all things. Could you imagine, right? That's hard. And I hardly saw my parents at home because they were always at work, both of them. So my brother essentially raised me from age two. He would pick me up, you know, from preschool or those kind of, I mean, he, he really took care of me. But that was my life. And uh, I think the lack of verbal affirmation was, uh, to me, I, I misinterpreted. But looking back, I'm deeply grateful. Why? Because their sacrifice revealed their heart. Their hard work revealed their true love. And this is what's going on here. The Lord is constantly just saying, he's saying to you and I, if you ever doubt, if you ever question, just look at my work. Just look at the work of my son Jesus. There's nothing more I could give. There's nothing more I could sacrifice. What greater display, what, what more can I offer? And the work reveals the character of the heart of God when we go through these situations. I want you to just think about your life, right? And areas that maybe we're tempted to maybe complain uh, or grumble or areas uh, where we just think, this is really hard. Why is this person always like this? Why is this person, you know, why do they have to make my life so difficult? Those kind of things. And in those situations, whatever it is that you are facing, whatever problems, uh, how can you remember who God is, what he's doing? How can you remember that it's the Lord who says, behold, I will stand before my people. I will stand before my people. Where is it in your life that you need to remember, behold, it's the Lord who's standing before you. He's the one standing. And he's not left you. And he's the one who's providing. He's the one who gives his love and his care and his, every single day. Reflect on these kind of things. Reflect on this past year. Each of us, as we look on the past year, there are situations that we clearly see that the Lord pulled us through. There are, there are situations, there are people, there are relationships that were strained, uh, that were difficult, 
there are situations where we just didn't, couldn't figure it out. But think about those things and think about how when you called out to the Lord, he gave you help. Or he's writing his story out right now and you, and you are developing eyes to see how God is doing that for even right now in your life. How can we come before the Lord and say, Lord, uh, you are standing before me and I'm deeply grateful. Well, where the Israelites failed, Jesus triumphed, right? Jesus went through the waters of the Jordan River. He was tested for 40 days in the wilderness, just like the Israelites went through the Red Sea, and they were tested for 40 years in the wilderness. But Jesus, rather than succumbing to Satan, you know, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And he trusted the Lord. And Jesus, when he saw us, the feeding, you know, the, the 5,000 hungry, he fed the 5,000, and he said, if anyone believes in me, out of his heart will flow uh, living waters. Uh, he is the bread of life. Whoever is hungry, let him come to him. And this is who Jesus is. And finally, on the cross, he said, one of his final words were, I thirst. One of his last sayings, I thirst. Why? So that you and I would never thirst. He thirsted on our behalf. He thirsted all the way to death so that you and I would be satisfied for life, that we would never have to thirst, that we would never live without God's presence, his care, and his love. This is what Jesus did for you and I. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.